Please open your Bibles again to 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. Last week we began a short series on the doctrine of Scripture by looking into what is exactly entailed by Paul's first statement here in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. We looked at how the Bible views itself, seeing that both Jesus and the biblical authors viewed the Word of God as authoritative, and specifically they viewed themselves as writing words which are on par of the authority of the Old Testament. Indeed, we saw in the Gospel of John that Jesus' own teachings predicted that this apostolic revelation in the New Testament later, uh, letters would be spirit-inspired. Today, I'd like to move to a different aspect of the doctrine of Scripture. If last week was examining what Scripture is, this week I'd like to examine what Scripture can do. Perhaps more directly, what is Scripture useful for? What are we to do with it? And let's begin by reading our text, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God's Word says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we read of what your word is and we come to you, the Lord of the word, to ask your help. That you would indeed open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Help us to see the delightful, profitable nature of Scripture. To know that Scripture is trustworthy because you indeed are trustworthy. That it is good because you indeed are good. Father, we ask this as needy people, as sons and daughters approaching the King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by thinking for a while what Paul says on Scripture being profitable. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. We might translate it helpful, beneficial, advantageous. Why might that be the case? Well, we can say, for one, that God's Word is our most trustworthy source of knowledge. It's our most trustworthy source of knowledge. Let's think about that for a minute. How how do people in this life judge what is true, what is real? How do we determine the appropriate path? How do we know which way to go? Well, one way is through dreams. They think that if they have some sort of dream, that it must be from God and therefore true. It's especially common overseas on the mission field, less so here, but still, it's here. And while Scripture does have examples of God speaking through dreams, like Joseph, for example, we also have to confess that our dreams are not infallible. Certainly can't be infallibly interpreted by us. For example, if you have a dream that, in which you go off and join the circus, does that mean when you wake up you need to go join the circus? Well, certainly not. Well, probably not. Our dreams can come from our own imagination. Or worse, they can be influenced by the demonic. And therefore, dreams cannot be a trustworthy guide to what is true and real and the path that we should follow. 
related to that. People often try and use God's own providence as an infallible guide to what is true. People, even unbelievers, will set up some sort of test for God, and then they use that to justify decisions in their life. They might say, well, I'll quit engaging in this activity or that activity when God tells me not to. Perhaps when God convicts me, then then I'll stop, but he hasn't yet, so he must be okay with it. They might say, well, God must be okay with what I'm doing because he hasn't stopped me yet. But that's not how God works in this world. Just because he permits something to come to pass does not mean that he endorses that behavior. Further, how do we know that we are interpreting God's act of providence correctly? How do we know that we are judging events that unfold rightly as good or evil? We can't know that fully from ourselves. In fact, we're often, interpret- we're often inclined to interpret providence history unfolding in the ways that we're already inclined to believe. People tend to read their own preferences into the way that things happen. So funny story from church history can help illustrate this point. There was an old church, a Roman Catholic church, that was having a debate many, many hundreds of years ago. And the leaders were debating about which liturgy to use, which order of worship. Should we use the liturgy of St. Ambrose or the liturgy of of St. Gregory, and a plan was hatched to use God's providence to make the call. Both parties agreed to leave a copy of each of the liturgy books on the altar in the front of the church and expect God to reveal which one should be used. And when they opened the doors to the church the next morning, Gregory's uh, liturgy book was torn up in many pieces and strewn about while St. Ambrose's lay undisturbed on the altar. And so some of them clearly interpreted the turn of events to mean that Ambrose's book was the one that certainly should be used in the service. But others, including the Pope of the day, said that the tearing and the scattering of the pages of St. Gregory's book all over the room signified the truth of God's word being dispersed among the whole world And thus they said, Gregory's book is the one that's to be used. My point is this. That when we're trying to read the tea leaves of providence to see what's going on in this world, we cannot have a certain guide as to our own reading of what God's trying to do in each historical event. Even if we could see all the angles of each event in history, we still wouldn't be able to know how to interpret and apply that And to live rightly in light of it. Rather, scripture alone is our profitable guide. It is the infallible source of knowledge. Unlike my dreams, unlike my experience, unlike the events of providence, I don't have to wonder if scripture is helpful and right in all that it says. Paul would have us to know that scripture is the most advantageous source of knowledge that we can have. God's revelation in Scripture is sufficient. It is perfect. It is profitable every time. Well, why do I say that? Why do we believe that Scripture is the most profitable source of knowledge? Let me give us four reasons from Scripture why I believe this to be the case. Number one, Scripture is profitable 
because it's the only book that comes with a divine promise of blessing. Scripture is the only book that comes with a promise of blessing. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Do you want to be blessed? I can give you an infallible statement of truth. If you meditate on God's law day and night, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Let scripture be your source of delight. He delights in the law of the Lord. Scripture promises blessing to those who heed it. What what other book makes that promise? Nothing on the New York Times bestseller list can promise you divine blessing. No other word. No, none of man's words can provide blessing. You can study philosophy, science. You can read the best literature the world has ever made, and none of it can promise you divine blessing. It's because no other book is spoken by the wisest, most powerful, most trustworthy person in all of the universe. God's word is trustworthy, and his promise of blessing is trustworthy because he can not only make a promise, he has the power and the ability and the inclination to bring it about. Number two, Scripture is profitable because it's the only book that can provide relief amidst temptation. Scripture is profitable because it's the only book that can provide relief amidst temptation. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan in the desert? When he's weary in body, he hadn't eaten in 40 days, Satan comes to him and tempts him with bread, and Jesus responds, not with citing his own divine authority, which would have been right and just. He decides to cite from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8, God's previously revealed word, man does not live by bread alone, but from every word, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this wasn't a one-off tactic. How often does Jesus in the gospel say, it is written, it is written, it is written? Always responding to temptation and unbelief by pointing people back to God's word. And if Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh, use scripture to defend in terrible trial, use God's word as the sword of the spirit to fend off the evil one, then how much more ought we to arm ourselves with God's word when trials come? Or perhaps I can make the point clearer by stating the opposite. If your goal is to be unarmed for spiritual battle, to be ill-prepared for temptation when it comes, to find yourself weary and spiritually anemic, Make sure you don't ever meditate on God's word. Make sure you keep it collecting dust on the shelf. And don't, certainly don't plant it deep in your heart. Then you'll be sure to be weak when trials come. Scripture is profitable because it's the only book that can provide relief amidst temptation. Number three, Scripture is profitable because it's the only book that is an infallible guide. It's the only book that is an infallible guide. It it can't steer you wrong. Unlike uh, Google Maps and printed maps, God's Word doesn't need an update. It won't tell you recalculating, recalculating, and steer you the wrong way. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
It's the only sure thing that can guide our steps. It's a lamp. It, it illumines in the darkness so that a safe path may be found. It's a light providing safety, security for travelers walking unfamiliar paths. When we want to know what's true and right, we read God's word. We want to know how to please God, we find it in God's word. If we want to know what to do in a tough situation and we're not quite sure what the best course of action is, we consult God's word. It's not going to address with specificity every single detail of every situation in our lives. Like, should I put 10W30 or 10W40 in the car? But it does speak authoritatively and sufficiently for us to walk in righteousness in this life. More on that later, but for now, Scripture is profitable because it's the only infallible guide. Number four, Scripture is profitable because it's the only book that doesn't change. Scripture is profitable because it's the only book that doesn't change. It doesn't move. It doesn't shift. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You don't have to worry about God's moral standard fluctuating. That you might be righteous and just today, but that tomorrow the goalposts have moved and you've become unrighteous. But pastor, there are a bunch of Old Testament laws that you guys don't abide by today. They're not enforced today. Does that mean God's word has changed? Great question. No, it hasn't changed. It has been fulfilled. The Old Testament laws pointed to some deeper reality, some coming truth. And now that reality and truth has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament shadows have been superseded. They've been fulfilled. They're no longer followed to the letter like they once were. It's like now a rose has blossomed. And there's no longer need for those old little green leaves that encased the bud, there's not been a fundamental change. It's still a rose, but a new grandeur has replaced the old foreshadowing. Man's word is not like that. Man's word fluctuates. It changes. It ebbs and flows. You can look at our society and see that. In, 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 in one very clear example, my lifetime alone, and I'm not, I'm not very old, Society has moved from banning homosexuality to permitting it to endorsing and celebrating it. That's a 180 degree turn in less than 40 years. God's word is profitable because it doesn't change. It doesn't go out of date. It will never be irrelevant. It is fixed and immovable. And therefore, it's a proper foundation upon which everyone ought to build their lives. So there are four truths about why God's word is profitable for us. It comes with the promise of blessing. It provides relief amidst temptation. It's an infallible guide and it doesn't change. But if, this, if these things are true, if what I've said accords with how scripture views itself, then we need to ask ourselves, why don't we always treat God's word as such? If God's word is truly beneficial for me, if it provides safety for me, if it is my sure guide, then why do I find myself sluggish to return to it and to read it? Why don't I find it easy to fill my heart with God's word? Why do I find myself turning to other things in order to get knowledge? 
Well, the Bible says the answer is sin. Unbelief in God's word is a root sin that is persistent and pervasive. Adam and Eve did not believe in the word of God as it had been given to them, and they devastated themselves and everyone else. Rather than being the blessed man planted by streams of water, Adam was uprooted and cast into the cursed wilderness outside of the garden. Rather than having God's word as the lamp unto his feet and the light for his path, he chose darkness and he cast this whole world into darkness because of it. And men and women have been choosing that darkness rather than God's word ever since. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 3 that mankind loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We don't want the light of God's word because we like our sin more than we like the light. We want selfishness and our own sensuality. We want to covet what isn't ours. We want to be greedy rather than generous. We want to justify the bitterness and the jealousy and the anger in our hearts because we like the darkness rather than the light. But scripture tells us that God would not let that situation remain. God chose to speak in a new way and he spoke through the son. That's what the beginning of John's gospel reminds us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus Christ. And it says of him that in him was life and the life was the light of men. Though mankind was content in his darkness because his deeds were evil, God chose mercy instead and he sent the light of the world into the world. But Christ was not like the first Adam, was he? When the, when the first Adam encountered the serpent, he doubted God's word. But when the second Adam encountered the serpent, he faithfully believed God's word for 40 days. The good news isn't just that Christ succeeded where Adam failed. The good news of the gospel is also that Christ bore the punishment that the first Adam had earned. The first Adam was judged for unbelief. He was cast into darkness, but Christ has come and endured the worst darkness that anyone could experience. The full wrath of God on the cross, and he was placed into a grave of darkness. The first Adam tried to hide in the bushes and cover up his shame with fig leaves, but the second Adam was instead stripped naked and hung on a cross, enduring the shame that Adam had brought into this world. The first Adam tried to blame his wife to cover up his own sin. It was that woman you gave me, God. It was her fault she gave me the fruit and thereby earned a curse. But the last Adam died to take away the curse of the bride. And Christ did all of this willingly, fully trusting in the promises of God and his word. He knew that terrible pain awaited the promised Messiah of Israel, but that glory awaited for the faithful who would believe. And this is the good news for people like us who so often fail to believe. We neglect God's word. We disregard his holy law. We ignore his promises. We act like the warnings aren't for us. They're for other people. And by doing so, we earn for ourselves eternal darkness. Judgment is hell is what remains for everyone who stays outside of Christ. So don't ignore the warnings of Scripture. The very first verse of the next chapter in 2 Timothy tells us that Christ will come as the one who judges the living and the dead. If you will not have him as your Savior and your substitute, then you will have him as your judge where all of your sins, including unbelief, 
will be brought against you. But for those who believe, who trust in the light of the world, who embrace the Christ of the Scriptures and submit to Him in faith, we have a different faith. Faith. Scripture promises that all who believe in Christ will be saved. And so trust in this Christ and have your sins forgiven. Have them nailed to the cross. Listen to the Word of God, your only infallible guide, which calls you to trust in the Son. And by doing so, you will be saved. You will be cleansed. You will be forgiven. You will be adopted. This is what God's infallible word infallibly says to you. Faith in Christ secures all these blessings. If you would be the blessed man planted by streams of water, all you must do is believe. Faith alone makes you blessed in Christ. Now in the remaining time, I'd like to look at some practical uses of God's word. As Paul listened for us in verse 16, he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. First, teaching. It's profitable for teaching. We all need teaching. If any of you lacks wisdom, James writes, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Who of us has enough wisdom? I have acquired a sufficient quantity of wisdom to live in this life and I don't need any more. I know I sure don't. I could use a bit more wisdom. I bet we all could use more wisdom. I need wisdom. I need to be taught. I don't have it all figured out, which is why I need God's word, which is profitable for my instruction. Satan loves dumb sheep. He loves poorly instructed sheep. They are the easiest ones to dupe and to lead astray. If we would be best defended against error and false teaching, we need to be well taught in the word, well instructed in truth and doctrine. Our aim as a church, individually, each of us, should to be, aspire to be like Apollos in Acts 18, a man mighty in the scriptures. I can't think of a better compliment for a Christian than to call him or her mighty in the scriptures. We need to be taught. The scripture is... Helpful, beneficial, profitable for us in our instruction. Next, Paul says scripture is profitable for reproof. We might say rebuke. He says uh, correcting false doctrine or behavior. We need not only to be taught and instructed, we need to have our wrong thinking corrected. And scripture is the only book that can do this. Hebrews 4 tells us why. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No other book is living and active. No other book can be as invasive, can cut us to the core, can convict us, can pierce us, can rebuke us. No other book goes to the heart. We can quickly get off track in this life distracted, have our thinking all twisted and messed up. But we need God's word. It's just necessary. It's beneficial to rebuke us. It may not be pleasant in the moment, but it is so necessary. Only a fool would ignore reproof from God's word. That's what 
Proverbs 13 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer doesn't listen to a rebuke. Don't be a scoffer. Don't ignore the clear warnings of Scripture. Heed the reproof and the promise is made to you in Proverbs 1. If you turn at my reproof, I will pour my spirit out upon you. I will make my words known to you. If you want to hear God's instruction, then you need to heed the reproof when it comes. We can't read Scripture only listening to the things that are pleasing to us and ignoring the things that are costly to us. We have to heed it all. Next, God's word is profitable for correction, Paul says. This word used here is the only place in the New Testament. It carries the idea of restoring something to its former and proper condition. Bringing it back to its former glory, we might say. We can think of it in these terms. Paul will often speak in terms of putting off and putting on. We put off sin, we put on righteous deeds. The rebuking term we just used is putting off sin, it's correcting. But the restoring here might be putting on the righteous deeds. It's the positive obedience to the law. It's not enough that I simply don't murder. Righteousness demands that I seek to promote the life of others. Simply not committing adultery isn't sufficient. Men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Not stealing is not enough for righteousness. Christians are called to be positively generous. You get the idea. It's not enough simply to put off unrighteousness. We must put on righteousness. How do we, how do we know how to do this? Psalm 119 is helpful. How can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Scripture is profitable for our correction, for repairing our moral compass, for guiding us in righteousness. And if that's the case, then I need that word planted deep in my heart and ready for use, ready for application. So let us not be caught unfamiliar with our sword of the Spirit. Christians that cannot handle, cannot wield, that are unskilled in using the Word of God are exposed. They're vulnerable. God's people rather ought to be so armed with the Word of God and so ready with the handling of the sword of the Spirit that it becomes second nature. God's Word just flows out of us because our hearts are overflowing with it. Parents, this is of special need in the early years of raising children. I ran across a, a quote from Spurgeon, and I think he says it well. He says, give us the first seven years of a child with God's grace, and we may defy the world, the flesh, and the devil to ruin that immortal soul. Those first years, while the clay is soft and malleable, go far to determine the final form of the vessel. Do not say that your office, you who teach the young, is in the least degree inferior to ours, whose main business is to teach older folks. No, you have them for the first of them, and your impressions as they come first will endure last. Oh, may they be good and only good impressions. He says, among the thoughts that come to an old man before he enters heaven, the most plentiful are those who previously visited him when he sat on his mother's 
knee. Childlike things are the dearest to those in old age. He says we shuffle off a portion of that coil that surrounds us. He's talking about approaching heaven and dying. And he says the old songs then become the ones on our lips and the thoughts that are on our mind. The teaching of childhood leave clean cuts and sharp impressions on the mind which remain after 70 years have passed. Let us see that such impressions are made for the highest of ends. May we as parents and as a church be faithful to instruct and to train and to correct ourselves and especially our children. I think the biggest jewels in the crowns of saints in heaven probably reserved for those who teach Sunday school to young children. There's a special glory and a special use that God is often favorably blessing in the lives of those young ones. I pray that we would be a church that would receive with meekness the implanted word and that we would give with great meekness the implanted word to others that it would never depart us, especially our young ones. Finally, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. The word is, the key word here is for us to grow to be like Jesus, to be like our older brother. The church doesn't have to run after the newest programs and fads. Parents, we don't have to read the latest and greatest parenting books, God's word is profitable for our training in righteousness. If you want to be holy, God's word is our beneficial, profitable guide. If you want to know how to handle your money, God's word can train you in that. If you want to be a good husband and a good wife, God's word can make you that. If you want to love your children well and learn how to be a good parent, God's word can help you with that. If you're not sure which direction to take in a big decision, God's word speaks to that. If you're unsure how to act, God's word is more than enough for you to be blameless in any situation. God's word is to be used and to be used with great profit and it remains always for us if we would pick it up and listen and heed it and believe it. These are the promises that God has to us found in his word. Let me close with a point related to our doubt of God's word. If you're a Christian and you have doubts, the church can be a very scary place to be. Because you have doubt. You're not sure what's going on. You're like a ship adrift without an anchor. And you're afraid to talk to anybody about it because you're afraid of what they'll think when you voice doubt. I'm teaching Pilgrim's Progress in our MIT class. And right after Christian leaves the cross where his burden falls away, he goes up the hill of difficulty and he immediately loses his scroll. The scroll being his assurance of salvation. And the point I made this morning is that when he had lost his assurance, he didn't have what he thought was his commendation for him to get in the celestial city, and he's in a panic. What was his name? He was still Christian. He was still Christian, even though he had lost his scroll. And he had to be humbled. He had to go back down the journey. He had to go find his scroll again. But his name hadn't changed. 
I'd, I'd hope that our church would be a church that would embrace the doubting, would welcome the skeptical. If God's word truly is sufficient and profitable for training in righteousness, then we have nothing to fear by questions. We have nothing to fear. We need to be like the man in Mark 9. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. When professing believers express doubts and questions, we can't brush them aside with tried answers. We need to wrestle with them, holding their hands, wrestle in the scriptures. Find the truth. We help them by reminding them of the promises found in God's word. In this one short letter alone, there are many sweet promises. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, Paul says of the gospel that it's now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has abolished death. He's brought life. He's done it perfectly. Your doubt is not stronger than Jesus' provision. Doubt cannot bring death to a Christian because Jesus has already abolished it. It's gone. It's done away with. Your fears can't overcome Christ's faith. Likewise, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul was not afraid of the future. He knew who was guarding his future. We, likewise, don't need to fear tomorrow's doubts. Fear tomorrow's trials, because the one who holds the future is likewise able to hold us through it all. He will guard you until the final day. We could go on. This letter is laden with many promises. I encourage you to read it. Read it today. It's full of promises, as is the rest of God's word. That's the nature of God's word, full of glorious gospel promises. And it's upon those promises we can stand stable in this life. We sang it earlier. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Let me pray. Father we ask that you would help us to stand firm. Fixed on the truth of your word. And when we are, are doubting, when we are fearful, when we are struggling, when we are battling unbelief, when we are weary on this journey, when we are despairing because it doesn't feel like we're winning our spiritual battle, Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to remember the truth found in your word and not to doubt that your word is indeed trustworthy because it is your word. This we ask. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to close this morning by standing, using our hymnals in the pew racks in front of you, and singing 463, Rock of Ages, hymn number 463.